Welcome, everyone, to another episode of End of the World Podcast with me, your host, Anton Roberts. How, how are we all doing? Today, I have a very, very special guest. I mean, I always have a special guest, but this is a more special guest. I'm joined today by Jonathan Harper. Hello, Jonathan. Hi there, Anton. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. Now, Jonathan is a PhD student at MMU who's joined us today to talk about his PhD. So today, I'm just going to go straight for the title here. Um, the title of his PhD is The Forgotten Front, The Civilian Resettlement Units, A Triumph of Community from 1943 to 1946, essentially mental health during the Second World War. So first obvious question is, who are you, Jonathan? Um, you know, who do you work for? Um, what on earth propelled you to do a PhD? Um, yeah. So so just give us give us a bit, give us a bit yeah. of a background as to who you are. So, um, you know, I have a background in sort of a working with mental health you know that's a lie i've already fucked up already why did i say that i don't this have a background a children in with <laughs> podcast and already there is profanity and i will not because i will not have it now <laughs> well see that's nerves <laughs> okay i i will beep carry on <laughs> yeah so um yeah i've had an academic background in sort of um working with um the psychology of the soldier sort of what motivates them mm -hmm. um to do what they do particularly morale um my um past sort of dissertations have been on um sort of a breaking point sort of uh, the morale uh, in the european campaign um sort of a uh, what they incorporate to help them uh you know fight um, you know, the care that they received while uh, fighting, the aftercare they received afterwards um, and the training they received to sort of help uh, alleviate uh, anything that they could. Um, and again, as far as doing the PhD, um, really simply doing it, I did it because I, I love the subject. It's something that, I, you know, I'm quite passionate about. I've got a link to my grandfather in particular. He, he was a prisoner in a the war so my um project uh, which uh, well um be uh, specific which, which war and where they say it world war ii okay so um the cia the civilian resettlement units they were set up during world war ii to um help repatriate and reintegrate uh returning prisoners of war um although my granddad didn't take part in this scheme it was a purely voluntary scheme um you know, he was a prisoner of war and I think studying it's kind of bringing me a bit closer to what he would have experienced yeah. as well. No, that's, that's that. I mean, that, I mean, what I, what I found in my podcast already, that is every single PhD researcher, although they might stay on the surface, like by professional reasons, like, you know, I want, I want better progression opportunities. There's always an underlying personal uh, sort of like conviction and reason for doing it. Um, I know, I know, I, I know from my own reason, it's not massively dissimilar really for, from for a desire to want to make changes and help. Um, so it's quite interesting that like unpicking that there's always a thread there of the personal. So it's really, it's really cool actually that um, you're kind of following in your granddad's footsteps there and sort of understanding his experience. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely what you say going on to, if you are thinking about doing a PhD, um, certainly having a passion for the project you've chosen really helps, you know, motivate you. Um, and certainly going ahead, I know there's going to be some times where I might want to uh, throw the project out the window, but um, you've got that extra sort of yeah. motivation to get through it and get it done. There is no subject, and I just, just want to get this out there right now, there is no subject, no matter how interesting, that you want to read about and, and read about nothing else for years of your life. Okay, I'm 18 months in now, 
and I, I've at least two on two occasions, I've, I've got very, very frustrated and, and kind of, um, yeah, bored really, because it's not, it's not normal for you to dedicate yourself so solely to one, um, you know, to one thing. So that's entirely normal. It's part of the process, you know, like the PhD journey, it's not like a linear thing. It's more like a weird kind of roller coaster of ecstasy to misery <laughs> that we're all kind of riding but it's, it's really worth, plugging it for me there <laughs> it's worth it in the end that's, that's what that's that's what they get to that's, that's, that's what, I, what i was going for all right so you've you given us a bit of better background of who you are but you, you know obviously the the family link there what is and bear in mind not everyone will be from your background so you're gonna have to you know maybe unpick it a little bit um what is the kind of premise of your phd like what's it what, what's it about Okay, so again, to sort of reiterate um, what has already been going over in a bit more detail. So mm. uh, it is about the civilian resettlement units. Now, they were a unique project driven by ex-POW prison of war community and the general community uh, in general to help um, reintegrate prisoners of war back into civilian life, back into the community. Um, a lot of these... Um, I suppose it is right to call them kids in a sense. You know, they were very young, 18. They could have been captured right at the beginning of the war and spent five years in prison of war camps. You know, that, that formative years of their adult life would have just been four, you know, uh, them four walls, um, not really experiencing uh, training in job-wise or um, even how to deal with women. I certainly think back yeah, when I was 18, they were terrifying enough yeah. for me. Um, but yes, also kind of helping them, you know, a lot of these would have still experienced um, what you would normally associate with soldiers. They'd have been captured in traumatic um, incidences. You know, a lot of these chaps, they went to war, they wouldn't have thought they were going to get captured. So, you know, that shock as well of suddenly, you know, um, well, to quote that word for you, the war is over, quite a bit of a, a shock for them as well. And uh you know, helping them mentally as well. Um, it's something that the government wasn't really prepared for. Despite the fact, say, going back to World War One, they did have experience with mass demobilization, with the experience of, um, you know, helping them as far as could, yeah, integrate into um, back into society. Those lessons have really been forgotten. And World War II, they were caught on the hop. It, it didn't turn out how they, they thought it was. You know, you've got 40 when the Blitzkrieg started happening. Um, all of a sudden, they were in a position that they didn't think they were going to be. France fell and they had, you know, thousands of men suddenly imprisoned. Uh, in the Far East, you had the fall of Singapore. So, you know, you're talking of hundreds of thousands of men suddenly that they weren't expecting to ever be in a position like this. And, um, you know, the government, the the they termed them the awkward lot, which kind of goes to show <laughs> that just what sums up the about mental them. health policy of the time. Exactly. <laughs> yes, um, they, they were really caught with their pants down, if you excuse the expression. So they had to kind of turn to um, <laughs> you. You apologise for for a comment saying, <laughs> but, but swear on my podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Double stamps. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, they they had to kind of rely on. Um, those independent researchers who've carried on this um you know the government themselves did kind of after world war one um things like shell shock it became a very politicized thing to talk about it was very taboo anyway mental health the subject of that um 
back then it was kind of seen as a flaw of character a mental weakness so it wasn't really discussed um but the government themselves they didn't want to essentially pay out money to all of these returning men mm. because every soldier was entitled a pension but they were entitled more money from that pension if they were medically discharged so associating something like shell shock as a medical symptom to a lot of these returning men would mean they'd have to fork out a lot of money and to be fair i imagine at the time the sort of country's economy would have already been crippled because of the war right so Mm. it's a huge expense to consider yeah exactly but it was in a way a a big failing of the government Mm. um come to world war ii the general consensus within the community as a whole was that the government had really sort of messed up and let down these men after world war one you know they were promised a lot they weren't given a lot in many respects regarding shell shock the government kind of covered it up they had a few committees set up to kind of um, excuse them out of giving money to these men. So they didn't, they kind of decided that the term shell shock was overused. It was kind of in the popular public imagination, but that's not what it was. Very few people in their minds suffered from shell shock. And what they wanted to get out was that those men who did suffer from, you know, anxiety, tremors, nightmares, stuff like that, they were already, before they joined into the army, predisposed to something like that anyway. So it wasn't wow. the shell fire or the army's fault. Um, those people who had suffered from these kind of things, like they branded war neurosis, um, were already had family histories of mental illness or such things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it was the issue of mental health was kind of put to bed by certainly the military and the government, very conservative in their views anyway. A lot of the people who were on these committees were already predisposed to thinking that um, shell shock was really malingerous, you know, a weakness of character. Right. So was that, was that, because again, because you kind of, because my next question was going to be about the view of mental health and you're kind of getting onto it mm. anyway. What, so did they see it? So did the government just see um, like mental illness as just like a form of, of, of weakness, like almost like a, like, like a disease. It's like kind of like a medical model, right? Like something you almost catch, like what was it? What, like, like try and like paint as a picture of what it was like. Yeah. So like you said, there's like two spheres to that. There's the outside medical view. And then there's kind of the medical view from the army and mm. the government themselves. Um, and certainly the, the government, like you suggested, did kind of um, view it as a disease that could be kind of stamped out in some ways or just avoided. Um, so certainly they did what was called the Shell Shock Committee, the War Office Shell Shock Committee after mm-hmm. World War One, And that was a commission set up to kind of find out why they had quite a large proportion of men who would suffer from, again, as it was branded, war neurosis. Um, and their opinion was, like I said previously, you're either predisposed to that or because of the large amount of conscription, a large amount of volunteers um, that joined up during the war, the normal way that the army recruited kind of broke down and it failed. So they would normally be able to select the best man for the best job, but because the need for manpower was so great, they would just kind of 
start putting anyone in. So the committee kind of, and the army themselves, came to the conclusion that through adequate selection and training, you could either condition men out of that way of thinking, or you could pick it up during the initial recruitment process and, um, well, just get rid of them. It's, it's, it's really interesting you say that because like, I mean, my, obviously my, my background is kind of a mixture of psychology and, and, and gender, which we, well, we can talk about the gender stuff in a bit, but like this, the, the, the sort of second world war, you know, it's, it's kind of ties in with that, like whole school of like, uh, sort of like Skinner kind of like behaviorist thought, right. That you can kind of like, um, train essentially people to think certain way, you know, like a stimulus mm-hmm. response. It's quite, it's quite like, it's quite simplistic. And it seems like within, in situations like this, they kind of latch on to um, ideas kind of like that, you know, like, okay, we can, we can just put some sort of regiment in place and we can, you know, like treat everyone in a uniform kind of way. So it's like A, B, like, you know, doing that kind of like indoctrinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, sim- it's very much a military way of thinking of something. Yeah. You can identify it, you can tackle it anything um, but it's it is a very simplistic way of viewing things it, it doesn't take any account of any nuances something like that um and it doesn't really answer or tackle the question of mental illness you know if if they find out that someone is unsuitable for a role they don't help the person they just get rid of them you know so it's um it's not a great way of thinking but it was the general way of thinking in the 20s in the 30s you know mental illness like i said it wasn't really understood as well as it is now it wasn't really talked about there was a lot of stigma and shame so for example a lot of these returning soldiers from world war one they didn't want to talk about it uh they didn't want to go and get help for the few places that were available for them to go because um there's that stigma attached that they were fearful that of getting jobs if that was down on the medical record that you maybe attended a uh, you know, a psychologist, something like that, um, it would be viewed unfavorably. Um, so, you know, they, they carried things that they shouldn't have really carried. Um, what, I mean, what, what was, um, I suppose for you as a, as a researcher, what, what was it about World War II in particular that kind of interests you? Because I'm assuming this is always a problem in, well, in any war, right? When you have that level of trauma, I'm assuming that there was something about World War II that attracted you to it. Yeah. So again, apart from the familiar link uh, mm. with my granddad, um, it's kind of in a way the tipping point of a greater understanding. So again, after World War One, everyone knows the term shell shock. Everyone kind of knew it, it was in the popular mm-hmm. sphere, but yeah. there wasn't a great deal of understanding. Um, there were a few places and people who continue to look into this after the war um, and World War Two. it it really started to get a bit more credence, the psychological work within the army. Um, Again, the top brass, a lot of them were still very suspicious of that. They didn't agree with it, but it's that kind of um, more accepting. And a lot of the work done in World War II helped during later periods, specifically Vietnam era war, um, where, you know, shell shock PTSD as it became to me, really came to the forefront and, you know, the advances really started to happen, but it can all be traced back sort of to World War II um, and certainly the work done, particularly with the Tavistock Clinic, which um, is very closely linked to uh, the civilian resettlement units. A lot of the psychologists that end, 
went on to work with the army and went on to developing these um uh, you know they were from the Tavistock clinic and that's an example of one of these places that continue to research how psychology and sort of psychological methods like group speak things like that things that would be normal now uh, if you were to go to therapy or anything like that um but were quite groundbreaking back then um so you know it, it's an interesting time certainly on the way of like mental health and mental health studies is sort of really how it it really started to become a bit more accepted, a bit more mainstream. Interesting, yeah. So, kind of obviously, I suppose it's 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 easy to be quite critical of what of what they got wrong. Um, yeah, but clearly they were they were you know they were sort of pioneering a lot of quite revolutionary sort of techniques at that time. It, it kind of it kind of reminds me of, of of Freud. Everyone gives Freud a really hard time, but the idea of actually talking to your patient like just wasn't done until he was around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the idea of actually sitting down and okay, tell me tell me about what's bothering you. Yeah. And again, it's interesting. Oh, you, yeah. Interesting that you brought up Freud, because, again, a lot of these ideas were inspired by Freud, you know, that a one to one mentoring, um, again, going on to group speak, stuff like that. So it, it can be traced back to to. Um, yeah. Freud, no matter how much if you track stick. any idea long enough, it ends up. <laughs> Freud. Yeah. Whether you love him or hate him, it's, it's one of those fun, like fundamentals in the universe. It always mm. at the back of Freud um mm, okay no that's, that's really interesting stuff um, i mean there's kind of so like over already in my mind thousands of things kind of kind of light up um one one of the things that you talk about which was, was really interesting was that whole idea of of the well i, I suppose i would call like the soldier masculinity right because obviously I, I i study gender so like masculinity is really fascinating to me and yeah you know for those who study gender we we, we see it as kind of like a series of, diff, of different uh, performances you know so they're kind of the things that you engage in within certain spaces right mm-hmm. um you know, so you know so you know you, you could have you know the sort of like the traditional father like masculine for example you know or the all the kind of hyper masculine physically aggressive um kind of you know like uh you know in a sort of uh, toxic masculinity always the, the, the kind of ways that we where we define ourselves in different spaces it's not really kind of a fixed thing but soldier masculinity is 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 really interesting in general and you kind of speak about it in terms of like gender roles and stuff so, so it, it might be quite cool for me for you, well, for you really to talk a little bit about that and how kind of yeah. gender factors into your to your research yeah really absolutely i mean Again, before going on to sort of the the gender roles, you hit the point on the masculinity of soldiers um, and how that can be a little bit different now, because a lot of these men weren't professional soldiers beforehand. You know, they were uh, tailors, shopkeepers, farmers, stuff like that. So the army life wasn't necessarily what they had been indoctrinated in. You know, it was very much a citizen army still, even at World War Two. But again, that that whole masculinity still comes in. They are men, they are soldiers, they are fighting. And you have as a prisoner of war, almost that gender reversal. So you have that initial kind of um, shock at being captured in the first place. Suddenly you've gone from being able to defend yourself to sort of being completely reliant on your captors. You know, uh, it's kind of a shock from going to this independent, you can look after yourself. You can't anymore. You're almost in a way, the female of that relationship. Now you are totally reliant on someone else for the first time in your life almost. Um, you've got that feeling of helplessness as well. You feel like you failed as a soldier. You know, the whole point is you're meant to be fighting and winning a war and all of a sudden you're shoved in a, in a camp and in a way you've failed your role that you've done. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's and in many ways as well. You know, I, I imagine for a lot of these men, obviously, if they if they endured a lot of a lot of trauma and pain, um, you know, and obviously a lot of scarring from this, I imagine a lot of them probably weren't fit for work afterwards, and quite possibly were relying on their wives. So I imagine that was that was a further hit to their masculinity, right? Exactly. Again, so you have, um, you know, even when they returned, things had changed completely. Um, there was more women in the workplace. They were out of jobs, the men returning, and suddenly you've got the wife as the breadwinner. Um, you also had the idea while you're in a prison of war camp that you kind of failed as a protector as well. So you would often get news from back home, certainly with the Blitz, uh, you know, your own uh, spouse, your partner, your mum, you know, um, they were suffering and you couldn't help them. You had that utter feeling of a uh, helplessness. They were getting through something that you weren't there to help them with. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 um, well, it's quite heartbreaking in a sense, right? Because look, kind of what, well, from what I've, what I've researched anyway, you find that, you know, when, when you know, when these men go to war or, or in these situations, and, and to be honest, it's the same in prison as well, right? You, you learn a set of rules, right? That you kind of govern your life by. Mm. And, you know, and this kind of like prison masculinity where you don't, you don't show, you know, you, you don't, you don't express emotion. You don't like show weakness. Um, you know, like it, it's all about like your physical strength and your prowess and all, all, all these things. People forget like in, in those spaces, they are adaptive. Like there's a reason why people act that way because when you're fighting in that, in those sort of, sorts of situations, you can't process your emotions in a normal way. And to be honest, you probably wouldn't be very good if you did, you know, like, Oh, the bomb just gone off. Oh, it's so, it's so, I mean, are you insane? Like you're in a life and death situation. Like the obviously, but I imagine the issue is, is when you then try and apply those same sets of behaviors and skills to a, a peacetime situation, it, it then reverses, doesn't it? Yeah, people. absolutely. Again, it, it's something that, um, again, perhaps the wrong word to use, but prisoners of war didn't have the luxury of being able to do. Whereas if you were a fighting soldier, you at least had an idea that the end of the war was coming. Mm. So you kind of had that time to process things a bit more and you could kind of ease yourself back into a civilian way of thinking about things. Whereas as a prisoner of war, of course, you were away from all of this news. You, you didn't know that the war was ending. Uh, like, for instance, my granddad, they w woke up one morning and the guards had gone and that was it <laughs> that was for them the russians came and liberated them and then suddenly the war was over for them wow <laughs> what a anti-climax to a horrible right year. absolutely so you know certainly with prisoners they almost didn't have this time to process all of these thoughts um and they were away from a lot of help as well like i said some of my previous research was with the psychology of soldiers and the frontline soldier, how, how they had help. The army did have rear units, rear psychological units that, you know, soldiers, if they were near the breaking point or if comrades saw that they were near, they could go and, and recuperate basically. Whereas prisoners, you, you didn't have that space to do so. There wasn't that help available. You, you essentially had to sort of stew in your own thoughts really. Um, oh my God. So, so, I mean, what, so, so what exactly happened? You know, you know, you know, the 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 war was declared over. You know, you're shipped back to your home country, obviously here in Britain. What, what, what happens to you? Like, like, you know, exactly. And and, and certainly with prisoners in particular, it was it was slightly different. Um, yeah. And certainly depending on where you were as a prisoner of war camp, because again, you have got to remember a lot of these uh, prisoner of war camps weren't in France. 
they were in you know the uh, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, things like that. They weren't liberated by uh, Americans or British. They were liberated by the Russians. So there was another um, aspect of how they got home. A lot of these men, they might have been liberated soon, but then they had to wait months before they got back home because there's this issue that the Russians had to send them back. And obviously, as soon as the guns stopped firing, there was this tension between the Russians and uh, the British, you know, so a lot of these prisoners were suddenly kind of caught in the middle of the early beginnings of uh, the Cold War as well. You know, they had this fear of, are we going to be staying here? You know, what what is going to happen for our future? <laughs> I, I, I had no idea that they were essentially waiting there in limbo for months. Um, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely. How they must have felt. Yeah, the, the Russians had two places, basically, where they would ship or fly prisoners back. And uh, they essentially had to get approved <laughs> by the Russians to fly back. So a lot of these men, you know, the war might have been over for them months previously, but they were still kept in them camps by the Russians <laughs> waiting to go back home. <laughs> you know, it's kind of swapping one captivity for another. Oh, um, wow. Really. It's, it's, it's just got horrible kind of... Um you know, sort of like mirroring of, of the sort of death camps and them being, you know, and, and then being liberated and forced back in because they, because they had to control their feeding. And yeah. Um, yeah. Again, wow. you, you couldn't have all of these men just wandering around um, a war-torn country. So, you know, suffering from the ravages of war, you had to centralize them and keep them, keep them somewhere safe. So it, it, it tended to be the places where they were incarcerated to begin with. So, so, I mean, Assuming that the Russians let them, okay. When when the, you know when the, when they got home, you know was was there any help for them then? I mean, it, I mean was there? Because I, I want to ask you anyway. Obviously, when when we're talking about you know like mental health, you know sort of mental illness diseases, there is obviously that 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 patient. There's also the secondary effects that it has on their loved ones, right? Because they they have to manage that behavior in many ways. Especially the yeah. wives are on the the forefront of dealing with all these you know these 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 like harmful violent behaviors and stuff. So. Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about when they actually got home. Yeah, which is exactly what the civilian resettlement units were set up for. Mm. They were not only set up for the returning prisoners, they were also uh, designed to help the family of them prisoners, um, as you said, um, help them deal with sort of the after effects of that captivity, stuff like that. So they were the civilian resettlement units, they were entirely voluntary. Um, the people who set it up were very aware of the stigma attached to mental health it's a reason why they were named the civilian resettlement units and not something like the psychological center <laughs> so all prisoners of war were issued with a leaflet um, describing the work that the civilian resettlement units were doing um, the civilian re resettlement units themselves they were all built or set up in places that were close to the communities where these men would be returning so you know they could have that close contact with these communities that slow sort of um reintegration into society uh get both used to how things were both the relatives of how you know their loved one had changed um but also for the returning prisoners how life had changed how the home front had changed you know a lot of these men essentially returning were strangers in their own household Certainly, if you'd had a young child before you were captured, you know, if that was at the beginning of the war, like I said, that, that kid would not have known you. And 
five years is a long time. You know, that kid has developed as a young person without ever knowing uh, this this man who's suddenly coming back into into his life. Um, so tremendous. Yeah, again, entirely voluntary, but a lot did take this up. Um, I didn't. I did. I didn't mention before, but but, but my my sort of uh, granddad also um, served in the Second World War. One. Hmm. He he was a POW as well, um, and he would uh, he wasn't actually a, 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 a like sort of soldier. I think I think he was maybe an MP or something that ended up hmm. getting arrested. So he didn't actually serve in the war war, but essentially immediately was imprisoned in a, in a POW camp, and ended up um, being a, a sort of a you know obviously when the when the Allies dropped the bombs. On you know on, on Berlin and stuff, they they would run in and try and rescue all the all the all the furniture from the houses and and obviously save any any valuable. So kind of like a firefighter really. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting. He, he just would sometimes quite casually um, you know mention quite absurd things from our point of view. But I, I didn't get the impression he got any help there. I think he, he even once met um, uh, you know Goebbels. Wow. Uh, which is, <laughs> This honestly tremendous story. I remember he he, he told me this casually, uh, or, or my uncle told me this casually over 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 tea one time. That he um, obviously was was pulling furniture from from a, a building that was on fire because just been bombed by the Allies. Uh, did you know? Did an amazing job. Saved saved loads of loads of of, uh, of possessions. And the Goebbels happens to be passing by, uh, stopped and uh, told him well done and shook his hand and then uh, continued on his on on his journey, and. Yeah, right, right, yeah, it's just it's just the kind of um, the everydayness of of that knowing what yeah. we do now of that man, yeah. um, just kind of like you know that kind of uh, yeah, it's just that sometimes real life is is just far more crazy than anything you you possibly read, um, but yeah, it's just it's just a in, interesting kind of uh, story that he, and and he 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 never got any help I don't think from no. any of but, these. So, yeah, yeah, you do raise a really good point there because even though you say that you're your grandfather was an MP, wasn't involved in frontline fighting. It's it's not to say that these men didn't experience the same kind of things. Like you said, your, your granddad was put to work in Berlin. Now, you know, the things that he must have seen and been through as well, um, just as much as any frontline soldier, a lot of these prisoners were used in, in dangerous roles, mistreated. Um, so, you know, they had their own mental scars to, to, to bear. Um Plus, of course, if they were caught in combat, all of that extra combat trauma that they'd suffered as well. Um, so in many cases, well, you can't quantify mental illness. Some of them had a worse time in many respects um, because of that extra kind of um, pressure they had on them. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. So, so, OK, well, I mean, you're right. We can't measure mental illness, but um, where, you know, where these these uh, programs successful, uh, do you, do, I mean, in your work, have you researched? Have you got a measure for how, you know, how useful yeah. they actually were, so, what the uptake was? Hmm. Again, before I slightly go into that, it, it is worth pointing out again on specifically the prisoners and the mental illness. Yeah, the prevailing thought at the time was that prisoners because they moved from the source of these traumas. But it's a very narrow view. It didn't take into account their experiences of being captured, what they'd experienced before, or indeed, again, what they'd been put to work or how badly they'd been treated. Um, so it is worth noting that in particular with prisoners of war, mental health issues weren't really thought of 
So things, again, like the civilian resettlement unit were really forward-thinking in that sense because they were set up specifically for prisoners and dealing with, again, not only their reintegration, but their, their mental traumas that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, sorry to go on a tangent there. To answer your original question, um, <laughs> yes, it's, they were successful, but it can be very hard to quantify that, especially with the civilian resettlement units. There is a reason, a very specific reason why my title is 1943 to 1946, because they ran for a year from 1945 to 1946, and then they were all shut down. And the oh. follow-up work was lacking very much, sir. There was a man called J.R. Reese, who was instrumental in setting these up. He'd worked with the Tavistock Clinic, and he essentially got a sample of 500 of the men who had been in these a year after, so in 1947, and had done some interviews and stuff like that with them. And that was essentially the follow-up work that had happened. And what he had found was that, generally speaking, those who had been to and attended the civilian resettlement units had less anxiety and had got on a little bit better within the community and reintegrating life than those that hadn't. Um, What we can do though, even though civilian resettlement units didn't have a lot of follow-up work, there was a lot of very similar schemes that were set up um, around the world at that time that did have much better follow-up. So we can kind of stipulate, you know, extrapolate from them going into the future how better they'd or how good they would have been in the long term so the americans had a very similar thing and they did actually do long-term interviews and effects with that and they found again the longer term that these men had coped better than those that hadn't sort of um gone to to similar schemes um the israelis actually set up a very similar scheme after the yom kippur war for their prisoners of war um, and again, there's a lot of things written on that. And again, they're finding similar patterns here that those that attended sort of these um, reintegration helped with their mental issues. They, they, they coped a lot better in the long term than those that didn't. Mm, okay. Okay. I mean, I mean, so in, in terms of your kind of like method, then I like, are, are you actually kind of like drawing upon like personal accounts and sort of like oral histories and stuff? Uh, obviously you've already mentioned a couple couple sources there already just wondering how you're going to go about doing this yeah so again it will be reliant slightly on the follow-up work from the tavrick cost clinic no matter how small that has been uh yeah the other studies that were very similar um but again personal accounts like you said there is some out there they are very hard to find because again talking about mental health issues stuff like that it can be very hard a lot of the work that had previously been done, it doesn't tend to focus on the um, post-war period. You know, a lot of the work there, there's a lot of work on prisoners' experiences during the war, but not after. So that follow-up can be hard to find. So yeah, it's, um, really it's interesting. It's kind of black, almost black hole. Um, hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's just that kind of... Um, I suppose you can kind of see it, it's the attitude of, of seeing mental mental illness, like physical illness, right? It's kind of, okay, he's broken his leg, fix his leg, it's healed now, he can go. And it's, it's that kind of like short-term, okay, he's seen some trauma, give, give him a few minutes to recover in a, 
you know, in a beach resort somewhere and then he's good to go. It's like, it's, it's that, you can still, they're still equating the two in the heads. Um, yeah. Which, which I think explains the, the complete lack mm. of understanding long-term. I, I think as well, one of the really interesting things when you look forward is that the government essentially had a blueprint of how to help prisoners of wars. Well, not just prisoners of wars, this can be put towards anything, you know, refugees, things like that. It's a great scheme of integrating people into the community. Um, certainly looking at, I mean, recent events in Afghanistan, a lot of these people have suffered quite badly. Something like this, very helpful to help them process what they've been through and, you know, helping communities get along. You know, there's a lot of debates about immigration into this country um, and I think some schemes like this could really help understanding you know on this but in particular what I find very interesting is that these were a unique um, project because there was another war very quickly after um, World War II which is Korean War which again we did have a lot of prisoners of war but the interesting thing is, is that suddenly everything became politicized because it wasn't, say, a straightforward good versus evil fight. It was suddenly capitalism and communism. And a lot of these men who had been taken prisoner were suddenly suspect because who knows what they'd been through or what they'd been sort of um, put through, you know, propaganda wise. They could have been returning communists so the government rather than looking at prisoners as someone that needs help or would like to be reintegrated suddenly saw prisoners as almost a threat you know these could be sleeper agents things like this that's why you don't find another project like this after world war ii essentially because of the cold war and this kind of fear of like the manchurian candidate you know that's prisoners really interesting because yeah. we, we still see how well yeah because like the kind of dominant model now in prisons is obviously that that is that kind of risk model. Like we still think of prisoners in terms of managing risk. Mm. Um, I, I find that quite interesting that it kind of, it kind of, it goes back almost that far and that they're already thinking that way then. Yeah. And it, it is fascinating. It, it's something that uh, going forward beyond this project, I'd, I'd really like to sort of get into, you know, um, sort of the politicization of this and how that affected kind of what was available to these prisoners. Uh, but also you can put it towards, say, the Commonwealth countries, because the civilian resettlement units were a British projects. They were not open to the, you know, hundreds of thousands of Indians, Africans, you know, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians who, who fought for us as well. And it's, you know, to see what their governments, what they did or put mm. in place for these, if they did. You know, certainly in India, that is a really fascinating um want to look at because very soon after world war ii you had the petition as well you know the breakdown of a government the traumas of that as well yeah i um, I, I, I would i would say though that yeah you know you're only doing one phd and i think there's a yeah, i know right for the future <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah maybe maybe just sm smack the one out of, you know just yeah. that, that first one first and then yeah and, and then we'll talk but um what i mean i think for me the the, the last sort of question i want to ask is how, well, in what ways do you think this this is going to contribute? Because you've already you already mentioned, and I think you're right to, you know, I think we could learn a lot here in terms of our modern wars, and um, you know, especially obviously 
the what the what is it the twenty year long sort of you know war in Afghanistan and all those and all those returning men and the kind of scars that is left there. Do you do you think that your your PhD will have some sort of you know like modern con- contribution yeah, to that? Absolutely. Um, apart from getting this kind of scheme into the wilder public sphere, it certain projects that the British Army did use for rehabilitating injured soldiers when they came back from Afghanistan um, mimic what the civilian resettlement units did. You know, um, so there is sort of that link there. I would say that it's still even now, even though it's more open, people know a bit more about PTSD, it's still very much an untalked of an unknown subject, really. And I think anything that gets the subject of mental health, not only in soldiers, but in, you know, any kind of person who's suffered traumatic, you know, trauma, um, it's really useful. It really helps. It can only help getting more discourse on this subject. You know, it is something that that needs to be engaged with on a greater level. Um, Again, even looking at lockdown, you know, a lot of people have had mental issues coming from a a lockdown and uh, it's a subject that needs to be talked about um, if people are feeling even isolated and lonely, a community project like the CRUs were is, is going to be really helpful to, you know, um, to these people. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think you've, well, a potential there got, yeah, got a huge sort of, you know, contribution to make. Um, and I don't, I mean, uh, yeah, I agree in the sense that there's been a improvement there. Um, but yeah, but we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I, I, I still think that kind of almost stereotypical, um, stoic soldier um still it's still kind of um you know sort of it's it still sort of perseveres really within um you know like military kind of kind of uh, circles and yeah i mean i i i you know my, my my father also um you know served in in, in two wars and, and and definitely like in terms of you know when he came back and there was there was a lot of difficulty there and and i can only imagine how much worse that would have been for the you know for those men and how how much worse it's going to be for the men who are attempted to get over yeah. you know, the, you know, the modern yeah. wars that we were, that I mean, we, we were talking yeah. about. As you said, there, there is going to be, and already there is signs that there is a growing mental health crisis within those that are served. And certainly with the shock events of Afghanistan, you know, a lot of them men are now questioning their role, you know, with the uh, Taliban suddenly retaking the country. Um, and when you look at certainly veteran suicide rates, they are appallingly high and anything that can health in that manner i think is is certainly worth doing yeah yeah and i mean in, in, in my own research we, we we tend to see them in much higher proportions in homeless populations too and mm-hmm. um yeah you know it, again it, it, we don't have time to cover it now maybe we could do it like another podcast on it but yeah it's, it's that notion of like you know like the good war right like obviously like world war ii it was pretty much like universally agreed okay justified right but obviously it's, it's something like vietnam or afghanistan that is that is not taken for granted to be a you know like a quotation marks here just war um, it adds another layer of difficulty for those that are returning home because they have that potential backlash and stigma and obviously people are essentially you know uh, almost attacking them for you know the political decisions of various politicians and yeah that's just i imagine that just that makes coming home even harder um absolutely like you said um you know the returning soldiers of world war ii there wasn't anyone at home who who questioned what they'd done but you know later wars they're, they're certainly mired in this um 
political no man's land almost of of whether it was right whether it is wrong and you have people questioning these things and certainly if you were involved in that conflict yourself it, it can have an effect on you listen i've i've stolen enough of your time so i will i will release you from this imprisonment but um yeah i just want to thank you very much for for giving your time today jonathan and it's been fascinating to hear about your phd and um yeah i wish you the best of best of luck with it at mmu Thanks very much, Angela. Thanks for having me. Thank no you. And you've been listening to the End of the World podcast with Anton Roberts plus guests. If you'd like to leave a message, please do so after the bleep. Like, comment, subscribe, because knowledge is for everyone.